Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. As I said before, we are starting uh, an eight-week series through most of this term looking at a letter written by uh, a Jewish guy who had converted to Christianity around about the middle of the first century AD to a group of Christians in southern Turkey. We're looking at the epistle of Paul to the Galatians. You might think, why? Okay, for some of you, you're not thinking why. You know, it's in the Bible. This is the kind of thing that we do here at Trinity Church Brighton. We look at the Bible and we explore this uh, to understand uh, God's word to us. But you might, you might be new to us this morning. You might have always wondered, but never actually thought to ask, why do we think this ancient letter from a guide to a bunch of churches is of any value? Well, yes, it is God's word to us, but there's more. The Apostle Paul wrote this, as I said, to a group of churches in what we would call today southern Turkey. Uh, It was a Roman province, an area called Galatia. uh, And if you read in the book of Acts, uh, chapters 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul and some of his mates, they went on a missionary journey uh, through this region to towns called Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, uh, and they preached the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And people came and put their trust in him. Uh, they formed churches, they appointed leadership, and then they leave. Why is this, is this important to us? Why do we care about this? Why are we going to spend eight weeks exploring this? Why are we going to spend time in growth groups? Well, you could actually say Galatians itself has been a pivotal book in the life of the church. Around the 1500s, guys like Martin Luther rediscovered the biblical teaching on justification by faith. And so those of you who are church historian nuts, you're going to be there going, ah, this is where we get the great Reformation doctrines. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Yeah, they're there. 
But if you're not a Christian, you're still probably thinking, so what? I'm not a history nut. Why are we looking at this letter? Well, let me explain a little bit further. I would like to suggest that what you believe determines how you live. Let me say that again. What you believe determines how you live. Not just what you assent to in your intellect. I believe that Donald Trump is the president of America. Doesn't really make an awful lot of difference to the way I live. But we'll see in Galatians that what you believe actually affected who you ate with how you conducted the basic affairs of your life. Because what you believe in answer to the question, how can I find blessing, is a core thing, I think, for every person, whether they're a Christian or not a Christian. Most of us, if not all of us, we want to live a blessed life, yes? We may not use that language. We may not say, I want to be blessed. We want to, we want to have a good life. We want to have a successful life. We've got different images, different words for it, but we are all looking for blessing. We're all searching for where we might find it. We're all wondering what it might look like and how we can get our hands on it. And the thing that we look to will actually affect our life. Let me illustrate. Maybe you think if you have the perfect man or woman in your life, uh, that is going to be the answer to that question. My life will be blessed if I have uh, the perfect husband, the perfect... I know a lot of you are sitting there going, well, I'm obviously blessed. Yeah, that's the way it works. Uh, I can see Jackie looking at Ian there. Um, Yeah, they're just basking in blessing, aren't they? Um, Sorry for picking on you. Um, But let me say, if that is what you think, if that is the thing that you are putting your trust in, your faith in, it will actually shape your behavior. You will be looking for an opportunity to meet that person. It will determine your choices. You will choose to do things and to invest time and energy in places where you will actually make those connections. It will actually define morality. Because things that get you closer to that person, they are good things, they are right things. Things that tear you away, that becomes a problem. It drives motivation. You have an opportunity to connect. You are there. You are focused. It underlies all loyalties. You know, they say, uh, mates before dates. No, but if you believe this, it's dates before mates. That's the way it works. You can change the image. I've just picked one. I've picked human relationships. It could be secular business success. It could be the acclaim of those around you. What you trust shapes your behavior, determines your choices, defines your morality, drives your motivation, underlies your loyalties. What you believe is really, really important. And as I've sort of given an illustration, you can have non-religious forms of this. You're just looking for a good life in the here and the now, but you also have religious forms of this. 
And maybe you frame that question of, what do I need to do for God to bless me? Now, Galatians answers that question very forcefully. Mandy read for us. Uh, There's some pretty forceful in-your-face language. Galatians defends the Bible's answer to that passionately. And we're going to spend some time exploring that, not only this morning, but over the next couple of months. But this morning, I've got four particular points for you. Paul, the guy who wrote the letter, the apostle, he states the core, he laments the corruption, he identifies the consequences and prescribes the cure. That's so you know where I'm going uh, and you can kind of follow along. So let's dive in. You'll also find that uh, if you've grabbed the outline or grabbed the the service leaflet, leaflet, uh, the outline is printed on the inside of it there. Paul starts by defining the Christian answer to that question, where can I find blessing? The Bible's answer, we call it the gospel. Uh, It's literally a word that just means good news, and it's good news about what God has done through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And really in the opening section here, the Apostle Paul lays it out for us in summary. Let's look at verse, uh, let's look here. Uh, Galatians 1, uh, 3 to 5. He says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul here defines the gospel, and I've given you five headings. God. Us, God, us, God. Beginning and ending with God with a bit of us in the middle. You got the idea? Okay, let's start with God. God has an intent to bless. This is the Christian good news. God is a God who wants to bless us. It goes all the way back to the start of the scriptures when he calls Abraham. You might see here in Genesis 12 on the screen, the the last sentence, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is promising through Abraham to bring blessing. And the scriptures tell us that that blessing comes through Abraham's descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, through his death and his resurrection. But the initiative is with God. There we have it in Galatians 3 verse 4. Uh, Galatians 1 verse 4. It is according to the will of our God and Father. God wants to bless. Second heading. God. God is a God who blesses. Us. Where do we figure? Well, we bring our need. Okay. We bring a need to be rescued, he tells us, uh, to rescue us from the present evil age. We are personally involved in this. We feel this present evil age. Uh, I went walking recently, uh, some of you will know, uh, with one of my 
daughters. We walked 180 kilometres over 10 days. Uh, and once I stopped taking the drugs, uh, the pain kicked in. Uh, I was on anti-inflammatories because I know that uh, just this present evil age is working away at my cartilages in my knees. And they're not what they used to be. Now that's a minor illustration. But the suffering, the pain, the injustice, the evil, the sickness, the apathy, the loss of purpose and meaning and connection, everything that we see where we see creation and society breaking down, the Apostle Paul puts under this category of this present evil age. And we are not just innocent victims. We just happen to be caught in this. The Bible teaches that this age, this present evil age, is of our making. That our choice, humanity's choice to turn away from God, to reject his rule and to seek to do it their own way, what the Bible calls sin, that is what has put us into this age that is characterised not by blessing, but actually by curse. So God is a God who blesses. We have a need, and that need is for rescue. And God, our third heading, answers that call. He sends the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. We see God in action as the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, born as a man, lived amongst us, lived the life that we should have lived, died on a cross, the death that we deserved under God's judgment and curse. And he did it in our place. He gave himself, not just for a random act of generosity or an example of love, but he gave, us, gave himself to meet this deepest need, this greatest act of love to meet our deepest need. He himself was cursed so that we might be blessed. And in verse 1, Paul speaks of uh, God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He not only died on the cross, but he was raised again to new life. This is the core, this death for us, this substitute in our place, and this victorious resurrection that brings in the new life that is promised, the life of freedom, the life of blessing. It comes to us through Christ. So God is a God who wants to bless. We bring desperate need. Christ answers that need by becoming a curse so that we might become blessed and then rising again to new life so that we might share that life with him. Brings us back to us. Where's this for us? We see the fruit of this work of Christ. The fruit of the gospel is grace and peace. It's not only grace and peace, but it's rescue. God gives us blessing. He gives us grace for our sins. He gives us peace with ourselves, with him, with, with others. He rescues us 
from this present evil age. Colossians, another letter that Paul wrote, gives us a slightly different image. One that I think is a, uh, a vivid image that shows us that he doesn't just rescue us and, you know, like the lifeboat that goes out and rescues you and actually then just puts you back on land and you go about your business. Paul in, Col- in Colossians uses the images of kingdoms and he says he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and he's brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. He's transferred us. He hasn't just, oh, rescue you and you go about your business. He saved us from the darkness so that we might live in the light. He saved us from serving evil so that we might serve the good, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He saved us from false kings, false gods, so that we might be in the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So blessing comes to us. This is the core of our message. And lastly, God, it ends with God, it starts with God. The God who longs to bless, he does so for our good, but ultimately for his glory. To whom be glory forever and ever. And the congregation said, Amen. Amen. I don't know, whenever, that's, whenever there's a scripture of reading and the Amen comes in, I want to say, Amen. You know, it's there. But we see here, Paul lays out the absolute core of the Christian message. God, ask God, ask God. God's desire to bless, our desperate need, God's answer in the death and resurrection of Christ our blessing that comes through that for his glory. God, us, God, us, God. But now, Paul is somewhat cranky. Did you notice that? This is Paul's crankiest letter, I'd like to suggest. 1 Corinthians is up there as well. He's got a few cranky moments in 1 Corinthians as well. But here, the customary thing, if you read Paul's letters, what he tends to do is he gives the little introduction bit, you know, Paul uh, and his friends uh, to the church. And then he gives a little bit of a, what's called a benediction, uh, where he does this. And then he often will say, uh, I'm praying these things for you. I'm thankful about this kind of stuff for you. Uh, Paul jumps over that bit entirely. Okay. He is cranky. Why is he cranky? Because people have taken that core, that, that thing that lies at the center, that gospel, the thing that defines biblical Christianity, and they've twisted it. We read in Acts 13 and 14 that Paul had this great missionary journey. Not without its trials, not without its hardship, but wonderful success. People come to faith, churches are planted, leaders are established. And then when Paul is off, off the scene, the false teachers come in. Probably a group that had come in from uh, Jerusalem. They'd claimed that the other apostles, you know, Paul's an apostle, but you've got the other 11 uh, who were there with Jesus. Paul became an apostle later. You can read about that in Acts chapter 9. Um, but they claimed validation from this Jerusalem church, which is kind of like the, the serious church, and the 
11 apostles who are kind of like the real apostles. And they came in and it seemed that they were saying, Ah, Paul, yeah, he's not really much of an apostle, is he? And he preaches a gospel, but did he preach the whole gospel to you? Ah, he told you about Jesus in his death and resurrection. Great. But did he tell you about this? They were coming in and they were undermining his authority and they were challenging his message. It doesn't appear that they were, they were disputing Jesus' death and resurrection. But what they seemed to be doing was adding the Old Testament law back into the gospel of grace. Acts 15 records a similar event. Acts 15 here. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. This is a different church. And they were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, unless you bear in your body uh, the mark that identifies you as part of the Old Testament covenant, the Old Testament people of God, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. They're saying, Jesus, yes, but you've got to have circumcision. And you can see why Paul perhaps is cranky. He's here and he says, I am astonished. He's astounded that they have so quickly deserted the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert, literally trying to reverse the gospel of Christ. How were they doing it? They were adding in circumcision. But the gospel clearly teaches us, the scriptures testify that the gospel comes to us as a free gift. And as soon as we start adding things to it, we pervert it, we twist it, we subvert it, we reverse it. This is where the reformers, they said it is by grace alone. Imagine, imagine a couple of our congregation members on Friday are going to receive some birthday presents. Okay, one of them's uh, my daughter. And uh, so imagine Beck's there. And uh, what she does is she then pulls out her phone because they don't carry cash these days. And she asks how much she'd like, uh, we'd like her to transfer uh, into our accounts to pay for the presents. You kind of like, it's a present. And the fact that she would want to, not that she'd do this, but the fact that she would want to pay us for the present kind of actually disrespects us. You see that? You're kind of like, I want to give this to you and you want to pay me for it. The Bible tells us that God gave us Christ. It is freely given, grace alone, and it is received by faith alone. When Jesus preached the gospel, he says, the kingdom of heaven has drawn near, repent and believe. So turn away from everything else and put your faith in the gospel. Faith is the empty hands that reach out to be filled. Faith is the need for rescue that cries out to be saved. Faith is the response that God himself gives us. Paul, in another letter to another church in Ephesians, writes this. He says, 
For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. The faith is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. He says it crystal clear. It is by grace alone, received by faith alone. And these guys were coming in and saying, no, 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 no. Jesus is great, but you've got to do this. If you want to be blessed by God, you've got to have the Old Testament law, particularly circumcision. Now, is that a problem just for now? No, it's not. This kind of thing is alive and well now. And we have two types, can I say, of common distortions of the gospel. The first one I call Jesus Plus. And these knocked on my door yesterday morning. Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus Plus Obedience. It's not the only issue that the Jehovah's Witness need to straighten out in their theology, but they will tell you that you are saved by works. You need obedience to be good enough to get across that line. Karen and I attended a church uh, a number of years ago in Alice Springs. We visited there. A friend had got uh, involved in this, and these people were saying, yes, Jesus, love Jesus, but you've got to be baptised by us, by full immersion, and then you've got to have this spiritual experience to show that that's been a real baptism. And so they've said, Jesus plus baptism and speaking in tongues. Other churches will say, Jesus plus regular involvement in the ministry structures of our community. They may not say that explicitly, but that's the implied thing. If you want to be a good Christian, if you want to be blessed, you need to be on rosters. Okay. (laughs) I was putting that out there as a bad thing. Not that serving on rosters is a bad thing. Uh, We don't serve on rosters. We're part of ministry teams, aren't we, Pam? That's good. Okay. But anyone who adds to the gospel is giving the same problem as what Paul talks about in Galatians. But there's another one. And if you see if you can predict this one, it's the Jesus minus. Jesus, yes, but how does Jesus tell us that we are to receive the gospel? Repentance and faith. We have to turn away from everything else. And we have to put our trust in Christ. There are those out there who will say, actually, you don't really need to turn away from everything else. You don't actually need to turn away from sin. Actually, God blesses your sinful choices. You don't need to live a life that he calls you to. You can have Jesus, but you don't need to repent. Not that our repentance earns our salvation. But this is alive and well. Now, it may surprise you a little bit that we are an Anglican church, uh, and I'm actually an Anglican minister. I may not look like that to some of you. Uh, This is alive and well in our church at the moment, and we are fighting the battle to see if we can maintain the biblical norm for life in the Anglican church. It's not just the Anglican church. Some of us know this personally. The Uniting Church has already gone that direction. And they talk about uh, twin integrities. 
which to me seems like a funny way of twisting something to get around the fact that you've got two contradictory opinions. The Anglican Church in New Zealand has already gone this way. The Anglican Church around the world in Marian parts uh, is going this way. This is a battle that is alive and well. Will we hold to the gospel? Because we believe that through the gospel, the blessing that our God wants to give to us comes to us through Christ. Paul laments, and I'd like to say, so should we. He identifies the consequences. Let's move on quickly. He says, if you lose, if you, lo- if you add to the gospel, you lose the gospel. It's not take your pick. You can have that gospel or this gospel or that gospel. He actually says it, doesn't he? He says that you have turned from the gospel to another gospel, which is actually no gospel at all. It's not good news. Why is it not good news? Because it actually distorts or reverses the gospel. Let me explain that. The gospel fundamentally says this. It says, I am accepted through faith, freely offered Uh, the forgiveness that is offered through the gospel, the death and resurrection of Christ. That is my stance. God accepts me because of Christ's work and I receive that freely through faith. And the life of obedience that comes out of that flows as a response to his love for us. The gospel teaches us, I am accepted, so therefore I obey. As soon as you add to it, What happens? It becomes this. I obey and so I am accepted. I've done the right thing so God you will let me in. You see how it reverses the gospel. Even adding something really little. I used in the kids talk the bottle of water adding 1% deadly poison to 99% pure water It's still poisonous. That little bit makes all the difference. If you have a vacuum and you let just a little bit of air in, do you still have a vacuum? No, you don't. You've got something else. If you have the gospel and you add works to it, do you have the gospel? Paul says, no. The problem is, it is no longer good news. It is no longer giving freedom. It is no longer giving blessing. You remain under a curse. So you lose the gospel, you lose the saviour. If you look there in verse 6, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. Now, Paul is not talking about himself. He's talking about Jesus. The idea that you can have Jesus but not have the gospel. The Bible knows nothing of that. The Bible is not saying you are changing, you're not just changing words on a page, you're actually changing an entire relationship. Simon and I are friends. If I say to Simon, I'm going to change the way that our friendship works so it actually suits what I'm comfortable with, uh, I'm going to, uh, can I call you Brian actually? Is that okay? Uh, <laughs> but you see the idea, after a while you kind of go, what is that about? How does that work? We can't redefine our relationship with Jesus. If we try to, we lose him. 
That is why if you change the gospel, which is the basis of our fellowship, our sharing with Christ, you lose Christ because that's not how it works. Paul tells us that if we change the gospel, we lose Jesus. And if you can't have Jesus, you can't have the Father because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is one path to blessing and that blessing comes through the relationship we have with God. And that comes through Christ, which comes through the gospel, which is by grace alone, received through faith alone. So you lose the saviour because you lose the gospel, you lose the blessing. Because what you have is a to-do list, which is the same as any other religion, which is the same as any secular form of searching for blessing. If I strive hard enough, I might get there. But Christianity teaches us God has done everything that is necessary. If you add to the gospel even one bit, you lose the blessing and you remain under curse. Paul says that the false teachers, they are literally anathema under God's curse. Why? Because they are teaching a gospel that is unable to save from anything. Under God's curse. And lastly, you rob God of his glory. Because if we want to add, we're saying, God, it's great that you did that. I'll give that about 80%. I probably need to top up with about 20% of my own. Something is lacking. Nothing is lacking. Nothing is lacking in the Lord Jesus Christ. We rob God of his glory. So how does Paul tell us to go? He prescribes the cure. Let me wrap this up reasonably quickly. The thing we need to do if we are in this situation... If we are being lulled, taken away to actually uh, put our trust in a gospel plus or perhaps a gospel minus kind of situation, see what Paul does. He praises God. He marvels at grace. Verses 3 to 5 in chapter 1 there. What does he do? Grace and peace to you. He's giving them a blessing. End of verse 5, what's he say? He says, to whom be glory forever and ever. He's talking about the gospel. He can't help himself but go, praise God. If we find ourselves being drawn away, go back to the gospel. Go back to the Christ who gave himself for our sins. Go back to the one who gave himself on the cross to rescue us from this present evil age, go back and gaze at him in his word. Worship. Worship. We share the Lord's Supper, the meal that the Lord Jesus himself gave us, where we eat and drink in memory of his bloody, blood shed and his body broken. Reminders of his grace to us. Gaze upon Christ, morning by morning. Go back to the gospel. Commit to heart, verses like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is a gift so that no one can boast. Commit to heart the truths of the gospel.
marvel at his grace. The other thing we need to do is acknowledge authority. Now, some of us don't love authority. Some of us naturally rebel against authority. But Paul here is saying you want the real thing. So you've got to go to the real source. So look at how he introduces himself. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Christ Jesus and God the Father. He's saying, I am the real deal. Along with the other 11, we are the commissioned representatives who speak God's word. I could write a letter, it wouldn't end up in scripture. Paul writes a letter, it ends up in the Bible. Peter writes a letter, it ends up in the Bible. They are the divinely appointed messengers of the gospel. And Paul here is saying, you've got to trust the authority. I know that uh, some of us here are doctors. I understand the aggravation when a patient has consulted Dr. Google uh, and comes in and tells you everything that's wrong with them and just asks for the prescription. I'm sure that aggravates you no end. I can remember a teacher maybe getting a little bit frustrated at someone who felt that they understood education way better than the person. And she actually said to me, she said, why did I spend time training to do this? But the Apostle Paul, the doctor can make mistakes. The teacher can make mistakes. But Paul is the divinely entrusted messenger. He tells us that we are to trust him. Not because he himself embodies all authority. This is not some kind of pope. Because he actually tells us in verse 8 these words. He says, if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. It's not the messenger, it's the message. And I would say here... If I preach to you other a message that is in scripture, you should not listen to me. You should get up and you should walk out. It breaks my heart when Christians stay in churches that teach as the words of God, just the ideas of people. And they stay for all sorts of reasons. But they are being taught by false shepherds who are offering them hope that is a figment of their imagination. Paul says you've got to go to the real authority. But we don't have Paul. But we have Paul's words, inspired by the Spirit, written in Scripture. That's why we spend so much time. We have the Bible. That's why the Reformation was fought on Scripture alone. See these doctrines come out. Maybe we don't like fighting about doctrine. It gets ugly, doesn't it? You see two Christians going head to head about things. Maybe we just need to love each other more. Well, can I say that if you care for people, you care about doctrine. Because you are taking, if you are allowing false teaching or if you are teaching false doctrine, you are taking God's blessing out of people's hands out of their hearts, out of their minds. You are cutting off the opportunity for those people to be saved. If you care for people, you care about doctrine. And it means 
Not that you'll fight about everything. But there are some things that you should never give ground on. Imagine. Imagine you had been given a medication that could cure the incurable disease that you have been struck down with. And then someone comes in and substitutes sugar pills for that medication. Or worse than that, substitutes poison. Should you not be a little bit cranky about that? I can understand Paul's passion. These teachers are coming in and they are taking the gospel and they are reversing it. And they are turning it into something that has no power. And they are taking hope out of people's hands. Paul says, acknowledge the right authority. And then he says, hold your ground. I love the story. I know I've gone a bit long, but I'm going to end with this story. Uh, Martin Luther, Augustinian monk writes in his little biography that if you could have been saved through monkish behaviour, he would be it. He almost killed himself through legalistic obedience. This man drove his confessor insane because he would keep on walking out of the confessional and then wanting to go back and confess the other thing that he forgot. And this man, uh, Johann von Stauzbitz, he just is beside himself. Because Luther is trying to achieve salvation by works. Jesus plus. Luther finds the gospel. Passages like Galatians, passages like Romans. He finds grace alone, faith alone, and the church authorities aren't really fond of that. And they summon him in to a council at a place called the Worms, uh, it's funny, if you say it with an Australian accent, it is the diet of worms, uh, but it's, it's worms. Uh, and um, at this council, he stands there with his biblical teaching that expounds the doctrine that we now know as justification by faith alone, the gospel that Paul and the scriptures preach. And when asked where he stood, he said these words that we ourselves, if we are going to find that blessing in Christ, not through our perseverance, because, but that is the only place it's found. Luther said, here I stand. I can do no other. And I pray that that would be what this church, throughout decades into the future, will say together. On this gospel, we stand. No matter who comes against us, we stand here. We can do no other. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would be at work in us. That you would show us the wonder of the truth that is ours, that has been given us in the gospel of grace. We would see the beauty of that grace that has been given freely to us in Christ. Not merely forgiveness, 
But Father, we are subjects of the true King and we are sons and daughters, heirs alongside him, heirs of your grace because of your love and mercy. Father, let us never let this go. We search for blessing, but you have blessed us, not just with material things. You've blessed us in this life, but you have given us a hope that can never be taken from us, a hope that we will be with you in a renewed creation, restored to the the world of blessing that it was. And Father, we long for that day. Help us to stand until then. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.